Let's pray. Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, this morning, I would like to talk to you about the attention economy. The attention economy. What do I mean by the attention economy? Well, I mean this, that our eyeballs and our eardrums are for sale. That there are huge numbers of people who are making huge amounts of money from the sale of our attention. So the aim of the game is to grab your attention and then keep your attention for as long as possible so that these companies can make money from what you're looking at and what you're listening to. We see it most clearly in social media. So you think, well, how does Facebook make its money? It's one of the largest companies in the world. It seems to be turning over a profit year after year after year. How is it making its money when you don't have to pay to have a Facebook account? Well, the phrase that people have been using for a while now is, if the product is, sorry, if the service is free, you are the product. So you might not realize it, but every time you go onto Facebook, you are now being sold by Mark Zuckerberg and all his friends to the advertisers. And people will pay money to Facebook or to other social media companies to put their adverts in front of your face. Now, this isn't anything especially new, okay? Advertising has been around for a very, very long time. And advertising has existed in print media, it's existed on radio, it exists on television. There are adverts all around us. But never before, until the technological advancements that gave us social media, have advertisers been so able to grab our attention and to keep our attention for as long as possible. And so the question we have this morning is, what are you looking at? What are you listening to? A few phrases that might be helpful for us to explore the attention economy uh, might be, what, we'll take the first one, uh, which is to do with the impact that this has upon us, which is taken from a book uh, written in the 1980s by an American sociologist named Neil Postman. Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was writing about the impact of television on the average attention span of the ordinary American. And he said, it's terrible. These people just sit there, tele-addicts. Remember that with Noel, what was his name? Noel Edmonds. Tele-addicts, remember that? Anyway. We just stare at the TV, the goggle box, just watching program after program. He said, our attention span has been lost. He said, in previous generations, maybe in the end of the 19th century, people were reading book after book after book, paying close attention to the words on the page. People were able to attend public debates that went on for hours, and they were able to follow along with complicated arguments. Our attention span has been diminished, says Neil Postman, by the advent of the new media the television. And if you want to read that book right now, you will find it is incredibly prescient for our current age 
because all you'll be able to say to yourself is, Neil Postman, if only you knew what Twitter was like. You think TV's bad? Look at Twitter. So the developments were that the, the television programs are increase of, of channels, but also the channels are 24-7. You can watch the news for 24 hours a day, seven days a week on a dedicated channel. There used to be a time, some people won't believe this is true, when the BBC told you it was time to go to bed and they turned off their programming for the day. They said, you have had enough television now, we will play the national anthem and the screen will go black. Well, what am I supposed to do now? Now, is that ever going to happen? Is that ever going to happen on the internet? Are you on the internet and the internet is going to tell you, I think you've had enough for the day. You've read all the internet we've got available for you. Now, a phrase that Neil Postman developed within this idea of the attention economy back in the 80s was to do with uh, decontextualized information. Let me just repeat that phrase. Decontextualized information. What he meant by that was information that you're going to receive that is not going to have any impact on what you're going to do today. So there's some information you receive and you're going to make a, a decision, you're going to take an action because of that new information. For example, if you see that it is going to rain today, you might take a coat or an umbrella. It's going to have a direct impact on what you are going to do. But there's lots of information about what the weather's like in Florida, for example, you don't even live in Florida. So now what do you do with the information that it's going to rain in Florida? You just know it. Now, whether it's going to rain in Florida or not doesn't have too much of an emotional impact on your day. But when the news is bad, when there are stories and horrors and complaints and people who are wrong and people who are doing things abominably to each other, and it's not going to do anything to your day, you're not going to change your behavior. You're not going to change your plans as a result of this information. That information is decontextualized. What are you going to do with it? Nothing. I'm just going to know it. And if it was emotionally charged, if it was a particularly sad news story, well, I'm just going to have to carry that sadness with me. I can't do anything about it. Neil Postman suggested that this decontextualized information left us feeling impotent. It weighed us down with stuff, things that we now know, but nothing that we can do to change them. So we have decontextualized information. Now, the other thing that I want to explore within this, which has led to the situation that we're facing at the moment, is... Uh, the idea that human beings are prone to portion bias. I'll repeat that phrase as well, portion bias. That means that you and I, when we are given an amount of something, we think that a whole unit of that thing is the right amount of that thing. Let me give you the example. They did some tests with a sugar bowl and different sized spoons. And they went to people and said, how much sugar would you like? And as a general rule, people would take one spoon of sugar. They found if you doubled the size of the spoon, they
they still took one spoon of sugar. If you halved the size of the spoon, they still took one spoon of sugar. So the portion of a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, as Mary, um, what's her name? Mary Poppins would say, that's right. A spoonful, well, how big's the spoon? We have a, an innate predisposition to take one unit of something, one portion of something, one spoon of something. You wouldn't want it to go to waste, you're going to have a whole unit. Therefore, the people who decide the size of the spoons decides how much we consume. And the social media companies discovered this. They realized that when people got to the end of their website, they would go, I have now finished this website. I will now go and do something else with my life. They realized that this is not what they wanted. Because remember, getting your attention, keeping your attention for as long as possible was the important thing. Therefore, they came up with, here's another phrase for you, infinity scrolling. So when you're on Twitter, or when you're on Facebook, or when you're on Instagram, or if you're young and trendy and hip and cool, you're on TikTok, it will never end. There's more content. There's more and more and more. And is this information that's going to have any impact on your day? No. Are you going to change your behavior as a result of finding this out? No. Is it just going to weigh heavy on you so that you feel exhausted by the time you've finished your session of doom scrolling? Absolutely. An American pastor, Paul Vanderclay, who works with a lot of young men, particularly who have found themselves to be addicted to online activity, whether it's gaming or pornography or simply social media use, he says this has produced a generation who have what he calls nihilism-induced depression. They have so much decontextualized information. They are so overwhelmed with the amounts of stuff that they know about the world. And they realize there is almost nothing they can do about any of it. And they find themselves to be crushed. Because, of course, this is not just information that you get access to by going down to the local library or information that someone keeps running up to you and telling you. It is information that you carry in your pocket so that at all times and in all places you can never have an idle moment and just scroll and behold and hearken and pay attention to stuff that's not doing you any good and it's not making your life any better and you're completely addicted to it. So we feel crushed by this. We find ourselves overwhelmed by the words. And to be honest, it doesn't even matter if you're not on social media. Radio 4 can do the same thing. BBC News can do the same thing. Overwhelm you. Because it says, hey, look at this. Have you heard about this? Listen, look, check this out. And then your friends are WhatsApping you links to stuff all the time. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen it? We can't escape it. So it leads to this sense of feeling overwhelmed, of feeling crushed, of feeling that we just, we're down in the dust. 
We keep looking at this thing, hopefully it will cheer us up, and then it just leaves us feeling empty. I wonder if you can keep a, a finger in uh, John chapter 19. Uh, that's page 1190 if you have closed your Bibles. But then turn with me uh, to Jeremiah chapter 2. So that's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 2, you can find it on the Pew Bibles uh, in page, uh, page 83. Uh, so the one I'm going to want is 831. Sorry, 8.30. This is uh, the Lord speaking of his people Israel and speaking about the fact that they have been drawn away from him uh, to idol worship. That they have turned their backs on the living God and that they have turned to other things, that other things have grabbed their attention. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah says, or the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own systems, broken systems that cannot hold water. We might think that the attention economy is a brand new thing that came about in 2004 when Mark Zuckerberg invented the Facebook at uh, Harvard University. Or maybe it started when YouTube began in 2005. Or maybe it started in 2008 with the advent of Twitter. But no, your eyeballs and your eardrums were created by God in the beginning. That the human being, as one who beholds and who hearkens to things, is God's plan. That you are a creature created by your, cre uh, sorry, created by your creator. He has made you to behold him, to look upon him to worship him, to give your attention to him. What does Jesus say is the, uh, the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You were created to be open and up to the heavens, looking up at God's glory, looking out at your fellow human beings, loving them well. And yet, because of sin, we have all turned in on ourselves. Our hearts, if you like, have become twisted, and compacted. And one way that that plays itself out in our lives is that we find ourselves drawn into increasingly less satisfying information. Drawn to doom scrolling and to doom mongering as we look out at the world and we feel overwhelmed. We feel beaten down by the world. Watch the news, it will crush you. What are you going to do about it? You're not going to do anything about it, see? You can't do anything about it. We're so weak and so vulnerable and so frail, we cannot have the impact on the world that we know needs to be had upon the world. We look at ourselves when the phone finally goes off, when the battery dies, it becomes what? A black mirror. 
And as we look into that, we see ourselves. And we see that we are pathetic. We see that we have given in again. We've failed to do what was asked of us. We've just wasted even more time. We deleted this app, didn't we? We said we weren't going to do this anymore, didn't we? And yet here we are, looking at ourselves, feeling dejected. And that's where we need the words of Pilate. Can you turn back to uh, John chapter 19? Do you remember it was on page 1,190? And in John chapter 19, we were given uh, this great instruction. I was very pleased when, uh, when uh, Tom told me that you had these as your pew Bibles, NIV 1984. I mean, I love this version of the Bible so much, I've even got it as a personalized number plate. Okay. That's not strictly true. But if I could, if you're going to get me a personalized number plate, NIV 84, that would be the one I'd go for. It says here in uh, verse 5, can you see it as you look down? Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Now in the King James Version, that says, behold the man. Which is much better, isn't it? Behold is a great word, behold. Pilate points to Jesus who is always beloved of the Father, the eternal Son, the Logos, the eternal one who reigns supreme over the heavens. Pilate points to him at this point in John chapter 19, verse 5. And he is, just as we saw earlier on, he is the man of sorrows, wearing a crown of thorns, covered in his own blood and other people's saliva, mocked, and Pilate says, here is humanity. This is what we're like. And we say, yes, yeah, sometimes I recognize that. Sometimes, every now and again, I just catch a glimpse of myself as I really am. Not when I've got the lighting all right and I'm standing in the right pose, contraposto or whatever it's called. But no, I see myself in my vulnerability, in my frailty, in my weakness, in my pitiful state. And Pilate says here, behold the man. That God would come down and join us in this pitiful state. That God would take on flesh, which of course we remember at Christmas time, not so that he can remain this pretty little pristine golden glowing baby in a manger. So often he's glowing, isn't he? But no, so he can be one from whom men will hide their faces. Someone you do not want to behold. And why? Well, in fact, Pilate says something even better. He's not just a man like us. He is supposed to be the king of the Jews. And so we have the same phrase uh, up in verse 14, just in the other column. You can see it there. Pilate says again, here is your king. Or, King James, behold your king. Now why would he be a king for anyone? If he's just as battered and bruised and, and broken as the rest of us in this situation, 
Why would he be a king? Why would anyone want to choose this guy to be their representative? Why would anybody want to come to church to worship this guy if he is the one who is covered in his own blood and other people's saliva? If, he is, if his bruises are coming up because of the way he's been treated, why would you want him to be your king? Well, because of another behold in John's gospel. It is uh, the first behold in John's gospel. Can you turn back to John chapter 1 and verse 28? Uh, sorry, verse 29. This is early on in Jesus' ministry, and John the Baptist gets to be the first guy who says, Behold, Jesus. And this is what he says about him. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, that's the same word as we have in John 19 twice, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, your problem is not just that you're weak, that you're vulnerable, that you are susceptible to manipulation and exploitation. Your problem is also that you are a sinner. And so this guy, this Jesus, is not just a man who is like us, not just a king who might be able to tell us what to do, but he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let me say to you, are you feeling battered and bruised? Are you feeling the weight of your own guilt? Are you feeling full of shame? Are you feeling that you just can't do it? Well, here is a man. Here is a substitute for you. Who on the cross took the penalty for our sin, who died our death and then rose again that he might be exalted, high and lifted up. He became like us so that we might be able to become like him. We have hope as those who put our faith in Jesus because we behold not just the man of sorrows, but we behold the risen Lord Jesus, ascended on high, who promises a new creation will come. So as you're thinking about what are you looking at, what are you listening to, let me encourage you to behold the man. Behold Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, you know um, who we are. You see us clearly. You know our history. You know our internet history. You know the things that we feel overwhelmed by. You know us more deeply than we even know ourselves. Uh, Father, would you, by your Spirit, help us to see a glimpse of our Savior Jesus. Help us to see with eyes <coughs> of faith and to hear his comforting words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
We pray these things in Jesus' name.